0: In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a graduate of the Military Academy at West Point and a member of such units as the 82nd Airborne, the 101st Airborne, and the White House with the Presidential Contingency Programs Office. This guest even did a little bit of clandestine work for an unnamed agency. But that's not all this guest did. He also ran nine 100-mile and 750-mile ultramarathons. And when he couldn't run, he raced an ultra-endurance mountain bike from Canada all the way to Mexico after receiving a third torn meniscus injury, 52 injections on his knee, and a heavy dose of nightmares. This guest wondered if a small machine called an NX Pro, which was used in his rehabilitation, could cause a passive stress reduction and give stressed-out operators and first responders a performance reboot. Fast forward through the last two years, 250 people, two of the three tier one units, a few police departments, SWAT teams, and EMS, and he's been able to increase 20% increase in speed and accuracy of shooting in only about 45 minutes of training with my guest. I would like to introduce you to the man who is leveling the playing field for accuracy, precision, and speed on target. Please welcome Vance McMurray. What's going on, man?
1: DJ, you're amazing. Well, thanks. Was like incredible.
0: (laughs) Oh, thank you very much. Uh, To start it all off, we always talk about the youth. Now, you sent me some stuff about when you were a kid. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because there was something that was kind of it was kind of confusing to me when I was reading and kind of going over your stuff. So, you lived with your mom all the way up until high school, and then you were going to move in with your dad for the four years of high school. Now, that only lasted for two years. So, was it? was he around up until high school? Was it a new relationship? I mean, what, what made it go only two years instead of the four years? Yeah,
1: no, I mean, he, for the most, most of my youth, right. I mean, he still lived in Corpus. Um, his family was down there. He had a bunch of real estate and stuff down there. Like if you, if you're listening and you're a long time Corpus Christian or whatever, like the original Whataburger and Corpus was, was owned by my dad. And, um, and so I had many meals there growing up. Um, and so I didn't, you know, I spent time with them in the summer type of thing, just cause of the distance, you know, you couldn't do like the, uh, regular visitation and that type of thing. But, um, you know, I just going into high school, I was like, you know, I never spent much time with my dad. And I came up with the idea of like, Hey, I just thought it'd be cool to live my last four years at home with my dad. Um, and then, you know, Dropping a, gosh, what was I, 15-year-old teenager at the time uh, into his life here in Austin um, probably was not the wisest thing. And me going from, I was living in a, where was we? Were we in Kilgore then? No, we hadn't moved to Kilgore. I was in Dallas then. But, uh, you know, went into a massive high school, Elsie Anderson High School here, which at the time had like 4,000 kids in there. Um, and so I had a lot of friends that were juniors and seniors and, um, the straw that probably broke the camel's back was the, I think it was the last year, last day of my freshman year or no, It was the last year, last day of my sophomore year. A bunch of my friends were seniors, right? And they had just graduated. And so, um, I went to Lake Austin with a bunch of them on that last day <laughs> and uh came home in my swimsuit and that is all no shirt, no shoes, no keys, no wallet, no nothing and um yeah it it was a a tough night and and so uh tried to make it work out you know for a little bit longer and then over that summer, you know decided to like bounce and of course, my mom pounced into the rescue and finished out high school in Kilburg, Texas. Um, were you,
0: were you in trouble other than at that point, were you in trouble ever really as a kid? No, as a good kid. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was just a bad, you know, looking back on it, you know, being 53 now and
0: <laughs> the wisdom you know. that we have.
1: Oh yeah. 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 And <laughs> you know, trying my dad and I haven't talked about it because we're close now. I mean, we text several times a week now because he lives up in Georgetown. Um, you know, and we haven't ever like really talked about that moment in time. Um, yeah. And, and me looking back on it, cause I've got uh, a 28 year old son and a 25 year old daughter who'll be 26 at the end of this month and then a 10 year old daughter. Right. So I've got this multi-generational parenting thing going on. And so, yeah, I mean, I've realized the errors of my ways with my first go around with uh, my first two kids and, and I've, adjusted a lot of things and adjusted you know my whole life around my 10 year old and um and so i you know looking back on this like i would i would have reacted way differently than i did
0: (laughs) (laughs) absolutely Um, and speaking about the childhood, you, you had said that you wanted to go to Annapolis. So, I mean, you had it set up that you wanted to go to a service school. Now, was it a service family or you just saw the movie and decided, yeah, that's what I want to do?
1: Yeah. I was the first, you know, I was the first one to join the service, right? My son has decided to carry on, I guess, be the next one in that tradition because he's, he's in the 82nd right now. Um. But no, yeah, I was, I was the first one. And it, I mean, it was all about wanting to fly. Right. And that there's right. a whole, whole you know process there and, and applying to the service Academy. Um, the first time right out of high school, um, you know, at the time uh, I started doing triathlons, right. Cause I was trying to get ready for the military and, and triathlons in 86 were like, not all the rage, but it was one of these things that you can look out there and people are like, Oh, that's really hard. And so I'm, that's just kind of like the way I think about stuff is like, oh, it looks so, like something I can do. Um, and so I remember because I was living in Kilgore, Texas at the time. And so to do my physical to kind of complete the or be part of my packet to even apply to get my nomination, I had to go to um, Barksdale Air Force Base in Shreveport, Louisiana. And so I got to like out process with a flight surgeon that day. And he was like, man, for 17 years old, you're as like super fit, but I hope you didn't want to fly. And I was like, Oh really? Why is that? And he goes, well, you're as blind as a bat. It's <laughs> so like, what do you mean? And so, I, you know, I found out then that, you know, I didn't have a good vision and, and you know, got classes and contacts and stuff. And then um, when, you know, I didn't get a nomination to the Service Academy at a high school, uh, ended up going to New Mexico Military Institute for a year. And so my way I'd stumbled into that one was my my mom was working for um, I think in my my note, to you, I said Roger Staubach. She was working for a guy named Ralph Neely, who was one of the offensive linemen for Staubach and ran one of Staubach's companies at the time. And um and so Stahlbach found out about he knew i was trying to go to annapolis right because he's an annapolis grad and stuff and he recommended he was like oh just go to Neme. and so i figured out what Neme was and applied there and spent a year there uh but that's that's really that year of my life out in roswell new mexico getting the crap out of me and this like little podunk military junior college um which like made plebeer at west point look like I don't even know how to describe it. Like summer camp. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: and well, I guess but, that would be a good question. then, when you talk about that, so Annapolis is, is on your list. You want to go there. You want to be an aviator. First you're told you can't be an aviator. You're blind as a bat. Yeah. Then you're told you're the number two guy and he only has one slot that he can yeah. pick for someone to go to the academy. Mm -hmm. Then someone comes in and says, we'll go here and do this kind of as a a placeholder until you can figure out how to get into one of the military academies. So you go and you do that. And I think it helped out reading through the stuff and, and doing my research on you. I think that 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 really did help with you going there. I think it put you in a a different state than the other guys that were there. It totally did. But, but to see from the military Right off the bat, rejection after rejection, or you got to do this, you got to do this. Did it ever sway your opinion where you're like, screw this, it's too much to do? Or was it, I'm going to keep going until I hit that end goal?
1: Yeah, no, it, it never swayed my opinion. I, I mean, because by, by that time, I knew, um, I knew the value of a service academy education. Um, you know, and at the you know, being I kind of started that whole process 16 years old, 17 years old. And so in in Texas, um, really in I should say in in North Texas, like around if you kind of just cut the whole state, you know, probably like Waco North. There's kind of the West or the North Texas, like West Point Society group, and there was this um army colonel there that just kind of he ran it like he was a brigade commander right but just in a caring leadership kind of way and um you know that was kind of for me when i got once i got nominated to west point and um got introduced to that group before i even like went to the academy um it just you know kind of underscored um how amazing Incredible army officers really are, because uh, uh, you know, and and I'd met like I can't. I should look up this guy's name because I haven't really thought about it until then. But you know, if you, I just and I never met a navy officer that was like any of the army officers, and and really, you know, non commissioned officers that I was exposed to that year I was at, at New Mexico Military Institute. I mean, it's none of them were as as impressive none of them cared for me the way that uh the army guys did and and so that just and then when i when congressman only had a nomination to west point that second year that i reapplied um it was you know it was done deal then because you don't really you don't get to choose the service academy that you want to go to Right. right you have to kind of take Unless you're able to get, I think, you know, some like presidential or vice presidential or some super high level nomination, you you really can't like
0: pick. (laughs) Which is which is a rare thing. Yeah. Well, okay, so I want to kind of set the stage and ask you because I think that it helped you. But the first question and, and it's kind of a short one is. Do you think that being in JROTC or or, excuse me, ROTC and and doing the stuff that you did, do you think it hurt you right off the bat at West Point? I think it helped later on, but I think it might have hurt you right off the bat.
1: Why do you say that?
0: So when you got there, you could do the orienteering. You said that shoot, move, communicate. You had all that. But the academics were a lot harder than you thought. So oh, yeah. being at a community college and then going and seeing the um, level of education that's going on at West Point, I would, I would grant to say that they're way different from each other. Not to say that the, the community college is yeah. any worse, but I think that it would be more focused on at West Point. Would that be a correct assumption?
1: Yeah, and, and then he was a, <clears throat> a junior college, not really a community college. I mean, I guess it's the same thing. Right, but I, I would attribute that more to the uh, poor high schools that I had in Kilgore, Texas. Right? Okay, like I mean, I I didn't have to like study. It was I didn't study in high school. I didn't have to like work hard before I, had, you know, graduated with like a three seven five out of high school and rarely studied. And and then I get to West Point and it's hard as fuck. And so, you know, I I had to figure out learn how to learn. You know which, which took me two and a half years at West Point to like really
0: figure out. Well, let's talk about that because yeah. what you had sent me was that you failed your first three math classes. Yeah, and then every summer of West Point, you were in summer school. Yep. So, yeah. what? Now we'll go back to that same question. Does this ever disillusion you? Because you're like, shit, I'm going all year, <laughs> and I'm going in the summertime. Does it ever? Are you thinking maybe? Maybe I made a bad decision.
1: Yeah, I. I mean, the it was really the probably the first time I wasn't. I just figured, yeah. I mean, it's it, I'm out of. So let's say there are let's say nine hundred people in my class, right? Okay. I think we graduated like nine fifteen. So first year, there's still rough a little over a thousand, but there's like under a hundred of us that go to summer school. It's not that many. <laughs> okay. So, I'm in a very select group of people, right?
0: Well, I would say for all three summers, you're in a very select
1: group. I I am. There's like 10 of (laughs) (laughs) us. So, um, in the end of my uh, second, no, it was my freshman year, my plebe year. Our tack officer was uh, Captain Don Bridges. So, Ranger Regiment guy ranger regiment combat scroll i think he was he was enlisted he had to have been enlisted to have no he could have he could have gotten in grenada as no he'd have to be, have to have been enlisted to have a combat scroll in 88 as an officer because he would i mean he's probably he had probably only been i can't remember when grenada was it was in the 70s though wasn't it yeah 83 okay yeah so he could have, yeah, he could have, he was an officer, I guess he was in regiment when he went, when they went to Grenada. Um, yeah, Rangers League Away way, parachute assault, 1983. Um, and so he was our attack officer and each company at West Point has like a regular army officer that kind of like supervises everything and the cadet leadership kind of like, kind of sort of runs it. And um, Don Bridges, God love him. Um, I remember it was the end of end of freshman year, end of plebe year, and uh, I think he even told me a couple times because he he really kind of took me under his wing um, at the end of that year because he he knew I was working hard, like he knew I was not like blowing off and not doing the work. He knew I was doing the work, and I was doing amazingly well at all the military and physical stuff. And he was like, you know, I kind of see me and you, and um, he's like, I'm gonna do whatever I have to do to keep you here uh, because you're the kind of person that the army needs as an officer, you know? And so he was my attack officer for the next year too. And so I spent a ton of time with with Don and he'd take me out hunting. We go out bow hunting out in the hills around West Point and stuff. And he taught me how to bow hunt and um, that kind of thing. And so he's really the one, you know, again, it showed belief in me when nobody else could or would, um, that got me through. Cause after really after that year, I was, I'd do whatever I had to do, man. I mean, I, I went days without sleep just to do the work, you know, cause it was so much. Right. Type of thing. What,
0: was it only math or were you having trouble in any of the other subjects too?
1: Anything that related high level math, why well, I struggled with, <laughs> so because they they drop you into single variable calculus first year, and and so second year is multivariable, third year is uh, differential equations, or maybe it's stats, and then DFEQ. I passed q the first time. That was my senior year because I didn't want to. I wanted to graduate with my class, right? I didn't want to have to like go to summer school again, my fourth summer, right? And so I just. I pummeled myself my senior year to pass Diffy Q with a C.
0: (laughs) Well, and, and you did it. So you Mm -hmm. get commissioned 91, you're commissioned as a second, 92, you're commissioned as a second Lieutenant, uh, airborne Ranger school right off the bat, right? Any difference to you in going from a service Academy into actual now military schools?
1: Um, no, I mean, airborne school was airborne school, right? I mean, the, the difference is I think my son had a similar experience, right? You get to stay up the hill from airborne school and the, you know, the BOQs and stuff when everybody else is down in the barracks or or whatever. Um, and then ranger school, you know, I've, I just kind of took the mentality of like rank doesn't mean anything, right? Because, you know, you don't use rank or anything like that. I'm kind of surprised that they even like allowed you to like come in with rank, um, you know, on your uniform. Cause it just doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. And that's the approach I took. And I've always, um, in most things, like I, I want to earn my way and, and I wanted to earn people's respect. And so I just put my head down and did the work and, you know, brought guys along that needed to be brought along and, you know, led, led when I needed to lead and followed when I needed to follow type of stuff.
0: And so, with all that, with the military schools, with West Point out of the way, you're kind of set on your career, and you go to the 82nd, kind of in uh, heyday time, is how you. Uh,
1: it was amazing. Say it.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about it. You get to yeah. the 82nd, and even your first day that you're at the 82nd.
1: Oh yeah, dude, it was. I remember it was. I don't remember what time it. It was had to be like middle middle of the day, lunchtime, or just before lunch. I uh, walked into my first commander's office, and he was like. I mean, I don't even think he said, like, introduced himself. He was like, hey, what are you doing tonight? I was like, well, nothing, sir. He goes, "Well, you want to go on a jump? I was like, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> so, yeah, put me on manifest. I mean, it was like two, three hours later, we were doing pre-jump and, you know, headed on my way down to Green Ramp, and I I literally had no idea what I got gotten myself into because I, I think at airborne school, we maybe had two C-130s. You know, worth of jumps and Ranger School was uh, not much more than that. If if that if we didn't uh, maybe we just had one plane. I don't even remember, but yeah, I mean I remember coming out of the plane at night out of a C-141 over Sicily drop zone, and like the planes just kept on coming my whole way down to the ground, and then I saw all these like lights on the drop zone. I don't. Did you did you ever?
0: Like, I didn't go to jump
1: school. You didn't go to jump school? Yeah. So you have no idea about, like, heavy drops and a mass nope. attack. Yeah. I so was aerosol
0: you- and I had uh, my scuba bubble. That was uh, like-
1: So, you know, if you can imagine, you know, so you're dropping an entire brigade out of airplanes, right? All their equipment, too. So every heavy drop platform has got, like, this magical color combination of chem lights on it. <laughs> on the drop zone that you're looking down and you're like, what are all these lights down here? Right. And I'd never seen anything like that. And as I got closer to the ground, I could see, I was like, wow, that's a deuce and half. Man, that's a Humvee. That's a howitzer over there. You know, it was a lot of stuff. And um, yeah. And then, you know, my commander was like the assembly point is this lone pine tree on the north end of Sicily and i'm like okay sounds good sir and it's kind of my mentality i'm like all right i'll i'll figure it out when i get there (laughs) and uh i remember i did my plf and i'm laying there on the ground pop the riser and start getting my shoot up and i get it in the, the parachute bag and i start running up the drop zone and again this is my first day at fort bragg and i'm looking It's still night but you can see the shape of a pine tree and i'm like Man, there's a shit ton of pine trees around here. (laughs) I hope I could find this one. (laughs) So I just kept running, you know, and I happened to be at the middle of a stick. So I was halfway down Sicily, which is like this massive drop zone. And I run up there and sure enough, just in the, you know, the barely nighttime light that I could see, there was this lone pine tree that was there and there he was. He was like, "Good job, Barry, Glad you made it." <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> well, when you when you do that, and it's kind of your first—that's your first really foray into active duty. Yeah. Um, you're a brand new butter bar. Mm-hmm. Um, you you haven't really done. I mean, you've gone to the schools, but you haven't really done anything. Are you thinking, "Yep, this was the best idea I've ever had." Oh, and yeah. everything that I've done so far, this is it. This kind of seals the deal and tells oh, yeah. me I'm on the right track. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was great. I mean, I I loved every minute of it. I mean, And there, so not there wasn't a bad day, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, and and you know, it's it's crazy to hear that because you get a lot of young officers that would say, "Yeah, it was great, but there's a there's a huge learning curve." and um they're not only learning their job but they're learning how to be in charge of troops because i mean let's be honest people don't really know how to be in charge you have to be i mean there are leaders but you have to be taught to be in charge would you agree with that
1: oh totally yeah i mean i was you know i would it man i was super grateful for uh sergeant first class edwards my first platoon sergeant first sergeant Lear, my first first sergeant and um Man, Sean Lear has some of the best sayings that I still throw out there every once in a while because they're typical first sergeant type of sayings, you know, and, um, yeah, and it and those guys taught me everything I know, you know, and I, I – um, they were – I mean, they're just – they were the kind of guys that were, you know, hard chargers and respectable. They both had master wings, both tabs. I mean, so they just you – kn- you knew they had been through it all. I mean, Edwards and I had even – when um, the 82nd was uh, kind of called on to do that operation of whole democracy when we almost went into Haiti. Um, Edwards, he was a primary on our bird and I was the AJ on our bird and stuff. And so we we just had a lot of like incredible experiences together. Um, and he even like I remember when we were doing we when he and I got um, offered the jump masters on those planes going into Haiti and we were like number 12. I think we were like the 12th C 141 going into Haiti. Um, and he offered the the PJ to me. Um, and so these were just good dudes, you know, had incredible NCOs around me. I mean, that's really probably the the most valuable thing that I, I had in, in my kind of regular army career that that taught me, you know, everything. And and I was the kind of guy like you. I mean, if if I looked at you and I could tell like you're a hard charger and you could you could take me and I, I shouldn't say take that sounds bad if you could like take all I had to dish out uh, and dish it back at me like Sean Lear was definitely one of those guys um, but like Sarned he was he was more like just had that look like sir you're being kind of stupid right now <laughs> and. You know, and he just we just had some good times. And he Sergeant Ed was like one of these dudes. I remember we uh, when the C seventeen was just coming out, we got the the chance to go to Yuma Proving Grounds for a month and test jump to C seventeen every day. Like that's we were because they were still like designing um, the air dam that comes out the door on the C seventeen for jumps um, and the jump platform and stuff. And the first <laughs> First night jump that Sergeant Ed and I did. I was primary on that when he was AJ. And um you probably have you ever ridden in a C seventeen?
0: No, I have not.
1: Yeah, it's jumping out of a C seventeen is is a very unique experience because of the, the airflow around the door. Like it's it's calm. Like you stand there with the door open and there's like no jet blast. There it's like super calm. And we had done I think a couple of day jumps by this and the first night jump, go out and do our first door check. And I come back in, give it Sergeant Ed the thumbs up and he comes in from his door check and he's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, that's just the kind of relationship he and I had, but yeah.
0: So let me ask you: In, in saying yeah. all that, with West Point and learning from those guys, and kind of being taken under your wing by under their wing by some of the guys there, and then by your enlisted guys there, I don't know if it's a fair question to say: Who did you learn more from, enlisted or officers?
1: Oh, totally enlisted, man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can you go into Especially. a little
0: bit of detail about that? About what exactly it was different about them, because I think that people overlook that sometimes the wealth of knowledge that comes from that backbone. I think, I think people see stuff and don't really understand how those officers that are in the command position, how much they're built up from underneath with their guys.
1: Yeah. And, and really, if you, if you think about it, man, like the, for an officer, um, yeah, you know, for the most part, I mean, my son and I spend a lot of time talking about this, right? Because he's he's an officer. Um, he's an XO for an infantry company, right, for a headquarters company in in CO um, Four. And uh, you know, it's the luck of the draw, you know, for an officer, right? You get you get the soldiers that you get, and they rotate out. But you know, in the reality, like as a platoon leader, a company commander, you're spending eighteen months, two years in those roles, and there's just not that much variability unless you you affect big change um in it there's just you you have what you have and so um you know I was super fortunate to have you know people around me that were just amazing and the for me um like dude I I mean I dug a few foxholes leading up to my time as a platoon leader um but not that many and we dug a ton of foxholes in a lot of different places and you know it's i remember i mean one of the first things i realized you know because as an officer you kind of plan things out like how long it takes to do a how long it takes to B, because you got to have a b c and d ready yeah at a certain time and so i remember one time like we digging foxholes somewhere and it took two hours longer to dig it in a different place and i'm like why is that and so instead of just asking the question the next time we had to dig foxholes i went out there and i dug foxholes with the guys right so i wanted to and i did it several times so i could understand like really like what's different about it like is there a way that i can help them do it better if i can get backhoes in there or something to like you know, understand that process for them and that workflow for them, so that I could help them better. And um, I know when it was all said and done, I mean, guys appreciated that kind of respect and effort that I put in to understand what they did um, and how they did it.
0: Well, let me ask you then: Do you think that kind of leadership's gone these days?
1: Um, you know, wholesale. I don't, it'd be hard pressed to, to say that, right? I mean, I've got, you know, some of my closest classmates, um, you know, like General Chris Donahue, who was uh, in the unit for a long time. He was squadron commander for the unit and took over the 82nd. Now he's 18th Airborne Corps. I mean, um, and then you had General Braga, that's SOCOM commander, and Todd, who was uh, regiment commander and stuff like that. Um, I mean, those guys know it like they they know the importance of of those non-commissioned officers in the the units. And
0: and and not to interrupt you, but that's kind of my question is, I I think that a lot of people know it. But do you think it's still around? Do you think it's put into action by uh, people that aren't necessarily seeing those guys on the ground that are so far removed from it? Is that being put into action anymore?
1: You
0: you mean at the, like, joint staff level? I don't don't even know if maybe that high, but I'm saying the guys that aren't with guys on the ground on an everyday level, and you can speak to it from a military standpoint, I can speak to it on a law enforcement standpoint, but when people don't see every day how the gears get turned, I think that that's where we get away from stuff, and it trickles down into good ideas aren't necessarily that good when put into action. So that's kind of my question is, do you think that leadership of, Hey, it took us longer to do this. Maybe I should figure out why, instead of just asking someone who's going to give the answer that they want to give. Do you think that kind of leadership is gone?
1: Um, in law enforcement, and I should say, probably first responders as a whole, yes, 100%. Like, I, I shouldn't say 100. I mean, 99% of the time. Like, it seems, I've, I've yet to meet, um, you know, a, a lieutenant or a captain, and I, I don't know where you are in the PD, but I've yet to meet, you know, a senior leader, I'd say, in a police department that really understands what's going on in the streets today, um, especially in EMS too. Um, And those are probably the two in the first responder worlds that I've had the most experience with. Um, And in smaller fire departments, those guys just, I think because of the size, they are in touch. But the bigger departments, they're definitely out of touch. And then in the military, um, honestly, like the leadership stuff that I see is just different than when I was in. Like my son is super – close or familiar with his soldiers in ways that just, I wouldn't have ever done, you know, like it's, and, and so it's, I don't know if it's just the cultural style of like where these guys are nowadays and how they interact with, with folks, it's just different. Um, you know, it was like, he, he has interaction with his, his soldiers similar to like I did later in my career, you know, in the smaller, smaller units I was in and stuff. But, um, yeah, I would, I'd agree with you. And in, in a lot of ways, you know, le- leadership is, it's a skill, man. And, you know, I've seen, especially when you start playing in kind of like the stress resiliency world that I play in with, with you guys and SWAT and EMS now, like, I mean, what, what you guys are going through, um, and I can quantify this and compare it to like what I see in the, the soft world and even tier one world, like the, the stress that first responders experience is, is at least 50% worse than what soft and tier one guys experience. There's, there's something about it that is just generates that much greater stress in the body. that i can't i can't get any senior leader in a police department or ems or fire to like understand that
0: okay so let's go on this for a minute because what do you think is the difference because when we're comparing the two we're saying these soft guys that have been in sustained battle for the last 20 plus years yeah and when comparing it to a law enforcement I I don't know from a law enforcement point of view that there's really a comparison because here's the way I think. There's a Mm -hmm. job over here and a job over here, and they are two different kinds of jobs. When you talk about the stress, though, it's not necessarily the stress from the job. Bad guys are going to be bad guys. Everybody knows that in both sides of the spectrum. The problem that you have is, is that you not only have bad guys to deal with, you also have the general public to deal with. And you've got a lot of people, especially in the last two to three years, that have a problem with no matter how a situation is handled, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about the stress, I think about it differently. I'm not going to say that it's worse than those guys because that's sustained combat in another country and all that kind of stuff. The stress that I talk about is dealing with, your chain of command, dealing with the public in general, and just not ever knowing that you're right. You can think you are and be told you're not over and over by people that have never done the job. So I want to hear it from your point of view, how it's different and why there's so much more from the other side.
1: Yeah. The, and so I'll I'll further qualify like what I was saying about this. And so the way that first responders um, carry the stress in their body is on average 50% worse than soft and tier one guys. And, and so what I what I mean by that is, you know, and what, what drives that, right, is, you know, there's, it's the stress of everything. And so if you take just the organizational dynamics that you mentioned, the stress of doing your job on top of the, the corporate stuff that you have, just all the stress in your life, you know that comes from that, um, and even personal stuff. the The way that you guys internalize it, and and it's probably the volume of it as well, is way like it's literally not even on the scale compared to like what a soft operator or a tier one operator experiences. And and the way I can caveat that is is so like the the performance reboot that that I do. On guys like I you know first developed that when we started shooting and so the average soft guy even tier one um, is going to take a a level of intensity from the NX Pro in the 21 to 27 range and it's on a scale from 0 to 100 okay Um, police the average police officer is gonna be on the high end of that so probably in the 25 to 27 range Um EMS and uh and nine one one operators, I'll tell you this, are are usually in the 30 35 to 42 range. And and so um and even tier one dudes, 21, 27. I mean, and so the the volume really if you want the medical concept here is called allostatic overload or out just allostatic load that you guys experience is it's way higher you know than what the military experiences, um and so that's and so that's that's what i'm referring to in in this you know and so when and what drives a, i feel like the, a lot of that carriage of stress or the carriage of that allostatic load in your body as a first responder um is you guys don't have you haven't been taught the skills to cope with it or what you're being taught clearly isn't sufficient enough to manage the, the allostasis and the stress to where, when you go into the soft world and even the tier one world, like, man, they've got all of the, the systems in place. They have all of the skills, um, to ensure that they're, they're ready to perform. You know, I mean, the military has made that kind of investment in them that they have you name it. And as a culture within those organizations, like going to going to psych to get your psych check, to be able to like go back on mission or to go back on an operation. That's it's culturally. Okay. Like they, they wanted to go, they want to resolve it. They want to get through it so they can move on. And they, they, it's not approach of like, what are the five things I got to say in order to get through this? It's like, you know, if I get issues, I want to get, I want to get them out. I want to get them over with and move on as opposed to like, no, I'm not saying anything to anybody. I'm going to keep this in and not deal with it.
0: Don't you think though, that if anything, that's within the past five, 10 years.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: For a long time, it, it was oh, non-existent.
1: Totally. Yeah, totally, man.
0: And, and there's still ways and, and I get completely what you're saying yeah. Um, I think that there is a stigma in law enforcement to say that you didn't handle something, oh, that, yeah. that you're processing something, mm-hmm. um, whether that whatever it may be. Um, I think that when you say that, though, and the the not being able to not being able to either be taught or not being taught the right things, what is. What's a solution to that then? Because there's really not one. Like I said, no matter which way you turn in a 360 degree circle, you're going to be wrong at some point in law enforcement, whether that be from the general public, whether that be from command, whether that be from fellow officers, whatever it may be. So what's the solution to that then?
1: To the being wrong or the the like dealing with that stress?
0: Dealing with the stress because it's at every turning point.
1: Yeah, I honestly, that's, that's the beauty of, of the reboot that we do, man. Because I mean, in 20 minutes, it, it brings the nervous system back to homeostasis or allostasis to where you can, you know, now you're at a place to where you can recognize the stress and you don't have to react to it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it gives you, it gives the nervous system um, the ability to respond to the stress if it needs to as opposed to already beaten at it being at a heightened state of stress. So, you know, imagine I don't know if you, you know, go on if you have like regular calls, but a lot of the guys that are on patrol that I talk to, right? It's, you know, 12 hour shift or whatever however long the shift is, then it's high stress call after high stress call after high stress call, or it's two high stress calls and then a couple slow ones and then a series of high stress ones, right? And so the depending upon the threat, of those high stress calls drives your neurological response to that right and and your ability having the skills to be able to manage that really it'll either lengthen the amount of time it takes you to neurologically recover or prevent you from recovering from it or it'll shorten it right and so if you're in allostasis or homeostasis is probably more the common term you know the, you you have the ability to really return to a normal state much quicker. Um, And then so that next high stress call isn't such high stress, unless it unless it really is right unless it's, you know, somebody shooting at you type stuff as opposed to just somebody cussing you out, you know, type thing.
0: Right. Okay, so I want to go back to your career because I want to keep time yeah. back and forth into it because I want people to understand how you got to this point to where yeah. you're talking about what you're talking about. So as we go back in, uh, you were working out with a neighbor, hanging out with them, doing runs and stuff like that. And I want to talk about this job because you you and I said that we'll we'll cover over it, but there's a lot of deep stuff in here that we don't want to necessarily get into Let's talk about that, meeting that, and then I want to talk about how the the shift kind of happens in your brain because from everything that you say so far with the 80-second, you're jumping, it's the greatest thing that you've ever done. Now we're going to shift focus on what you're doing, and we need to kind of talk about what you were doing, but where that shift was where now they're starting to be stressors, now they're starting to affect you, affect people around you, affect the family
1: yeah um so i had uh you know i was living in an apartment off riley road before bragg um which was back then that's like where the bulk of the apartments were you know that that most military folks lived in and the guy you know like most apartments right there's like or at least that this place was it was just two doors opposite each other you know type of thing and the guy right across from us like I probably didn't, you know, he wasn't there regularly, um, but when he did, when he was, um, he was driving this brand-new Corvette. And uh, he was a good-looking guy, never had a uniform on or name tapes on. Sometimes I'd show up in these, like, flight suits and stuff. And, and most times when I saw him, like, coming back home uh, from work stuff, he just looked wrecked. Like, he had been put through the ringer kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, probably after I'd been there a few months, you know, he would, I think probably after just living in apartment complexes, right. And you have windows that are across from each other. And he'd see me kind of come down to the, the stoop there and see me start stretching and he'd start coming out on runs with me. And I didn't ask any questions and he asked a lot of questions and, um, he was a, Taller than I was, probably two, three, four inches taller than I was, but you know, lean, fit, um, definitely an athletic, athletic kind of guy. And man, we just built friendship, and um, it was all really over running on Sundays. And after about a year and a half of this, um, he came out one time, and I mean, he had I had I'd walked out to stretch and all that stuff i mean it was still dark um probably at five thirty or so in the morning and he had just pulled up like in his car like he'd been gone and i hadn't seen him in days uh he just i remember he got out of his car and i could still see the look on his face like and i almost said something to him but he was like you going on a run i was like yep he goes hold on a minute he comes back out um in a pair of ranger panties and we go for what up being like five, six hour run. And um, I mean, he just asked a bunch of questions, like, what if this, or what would you do in this kind of situation? What about this? Or tell me about, I mean, I didn't, you know, honestly, like being the guy that I was back then, I had no idea like what he was really doing. Um, And I was, my mentality back then was just like, I'm just gonna like, do what I need to do to be successful. And if somebody puts a wall in front of me, I'm going to find a way through it or around it. And that's just kind of how I roll. And and my guys that, you know, I worked with and guys in my platoon, like, I think they liked that because um, like, we just didn't take no for an answer. And they, I think people didn't, they liked that about me, right? Like I always said, I was, I was always the kind of guy that I would figure it out and, and make it happen. And um, I remember as we were, uh, there was this trail literally would come out in the parking lot. And then uh, there was this hole in the fence, like right up, I mean, probably 50 feet from our front door that was was Fort Bragg. And um, somebody had clearly cut a hole in the fence there. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> we, would, we would cut through there because there were just trails and everything back there. And we were coming back, um, we had just kind of come back through the little hole there and, uh, in the fence. And he was like, you know, he goes, one of my buddies is going to give you a call tomorrow to see if you want to come, uh, work with us. And, and I just kind of like downplayed, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks. And, um, and so I had gotten into work the next day. Um, you know, I think we had one bone in the, you know, the company, Headquarters, right? And one computer in the company headquarters. It was still like (laughs) yes. I don't I don't remember what it was, like an IBM PC XT thing that was like a green monitor and three and a half inch floppy disk drives and stuff. (laughs) But um and we still had mimeograph machines then. Right. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I think you're showing your age, Vance. What's that?
0: I think you're showing your age.
1: Yeah, I remember yeah. doing training schedules on the mimeograph machine, man. Just- oh no,
0: no, I, <laughs> no! I never, I never had to do that. But, so um, let me ask you before you go yeah. on with this: this guy's obviously grooming you. Yeah, he he's he has selected you out. Did mm-hmm. he live there before you? Like, I'm thinking thirty thousand yeah. feet now, way away from yeah. everything is this happening for a reason? Is he purposely, you see what I'm saying now that you've been in the business, now that you've done clandestine operations, things like that. Are you thinking, cause I hear it. And I think the guy was purposely going after you.
1: Yeah. You know, I, um, honestly, like I, I never thought of, um, thought of, of Jack as that, as that kind of way. Like he'd been there some point of time, some period of time before me. Um, And just never, the thought really had never entered my mind that, that it was that planned out,
0: you know? Okay. All right. When I hear it though, I I think like, okay, he never, he never answers any questions. He asks a lot of questions. He puts a Mm -hmm. lot of scenarios out there. He seems to show up when the runs happen, things like that. He's always got you alone. It, it sounds to me like he's grooming.
1: Yeah, but I, I, I would totally agree with that. But the the like the con- concept that like he was there, you know, specifically for that, as opposed to I guess I'm looking at it more as like it just happened. I happened to move in there next to him. Okay. and he happened to be okay. there, and that's that's the way I've always looked at it
0: you know uh okay all right so let's let's keep going so you're expecting a phone call
1: yeah 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 so i get the phone call the next day and um it was one of these like hey show up 1300 hours here's the address uh tomorrow if if you're interested and i mean it's 30 seconds and and so i knew that was the call and so i and it was this this old fire station honestly that if you're familiar with Bragg, i mean it's you kind of like look at a map of Bragg and just go all the way out to the eastern side um it's kind of it's right on the road that goes out to chemical like there's this it may still be there i don't know but it was this old fire station that used to be there and um i show up there and it was a bunch of guys five five six guys jack was not a part of that um and it was like a board style interview type of thing and um, I don't know who any of these dudes were, or I didn't ask any questions, um, just answered them all, and I guess I passed that. And then I was, you know, the, in the timing of it all, which, you know, I mean, really taking your point into this, the timing of it all was precipitous, right? I was, I was coming out of my platoon. It was that, that time in my career, and um, it was just the right time. Right for this stuff to happen because a, a lot of guys would brag even in in my day right they would go to selection go to special forces selection um, type of thing about this time and so it was it was all that kind of like thing that happened um, and they had but they'd ask a bunch of bunch of questions similar to like what Jack had we he and I had talked about for the past eighteen months and so I, it was like one of these hmm. I feel like I've been here before type of thing. Right. Um, and, and so that was a few hours. And, you know, again, like I, I was just the kind of person I didn't ask questions about that stuff. And then it's probably, I think it was, it was within a week. um, I had gotten verbal orders that I would be going on an assignment in in a week, which was this training exercise that I was asked to be a part of, um, which was like their selection. Type of thing.
0: And so let's talk about personal life while this is going on right now. You're coming out of the platoon. Um, you're married. It's not going great right now, correct?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was not, not going good.
0: <laughs> I, I wanted to say it in the best way I could. It's, yeah. it's not going great. So yeah. let's talk about those stressors with everything that's going on. Um, because it, it definitely sheds a different light on what you're doing and especially the way you and I talked about it of how you looked at it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I had, you know, originally I had gone, I mean, my plan, I'm going back even to my West Point days, like I was, I was going to go in the army, uh, go to 10th group, um, no Russian. And I was going to go, go to Russia and fight, fight the Russians, right? Um, Because the wall was still up, cold War was still going on. And then, you know, the wall fell down in 91. And I was three years into my study of Russia and was very, almost fluent by then in Russian. Um, And and so I kind of just, that was my path. I mean, that was the world that I was, I had set my mind to go into. Um, And so, You know, for some reason like this, especially like once I got kind of through the selection, like I didn't know what it was still even at that time. And um, it seemed kind of sort of similar to that. Um, And so I just I just kept going with it. But, you know, the biggest reason that for me that I was doing that was just because I was having a bad time in the marriage. Right. And I was looking for a way out. You know, I really are looking away at, away from it, I think, which is, you know, just from being in that world back then, it was um, what a lot of us were dealing with, right? Because it's, I mean, it's hard being in the army and it's hard, you know, doing that married and it's hard doing that with kids and um, yeah. And doing that at gosh, so I was 20, you know, so I got married at 23, I think. Yeah. 22, 23. <clears throat> my son was born. When I was 25, you know, which is young. That's why I tell my 10 year old, like she can't go on a date until she's 26. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. I don't know if that's sound,
0: uh, advice, but yeah, I, I, I have three daughters of my own. I don't yeah. know that. Uh, I think the, you know, I I, And I understand exactly what you're saying. It's hard. Here's where it kind of didn't make sense to me. So your parents get divorced when you're two, 18 months, whatever it is. In here, you can fight to stay married, kind of keep the family together, your kids, all that kind of stuff. But you turn away from it and kind of go, now I'm going to do my own thing. So I want to know kind of your ideas, because I've asked a lot of guys on the show, like, okay, mm-hmm. so you've, you've got the family. You've talked about you want the family. You want to be the dad and stuff. What makes you turn away from and go into this? And, and I mean, let's, let's be real, Vance. You're not asking any questions. You're just kind of whatever job they're going to give you. You're like, well, it's got to be better than what I'm doing right now. Like, yeah. there's no question at all to it. So yeah. I- I'm trying to understand the mind state behind it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it, to me, it was more, I mean, that's, that was like, that world was where my goal was, you know? I mean, that's, that's what I want to do. I mean, I, I'd had my mindset on that. And that had been my focus for, you know, by that time for the probably the previous seven years, you know, that's kind of what I've been working towards. And, um, and so it was, you know, like I, I can remember, you know, it, even like when we would go on big field problems, right? Even I'd be out in the field for two, three weeks, a month at a time. I mean, it was a relief, you know, um, just because my my first was a handful, more than a handful, and it was it was a relief to like get away from that. And and so, you know, it's it's probably fairly common in in military culture, right? To and and you just didn't I didn't have the maturity back then to be able to realize like what was really going on and to like own up to you know my part in it but the stress of of that life even even as a lieutenant in the 82nd airborne right i mean my son's dealing with it right now and i he's doing a way better job than i was um at the time but yeah i mean the thought process for me it was like this is the goal and this is where i'm
0: going and
1: you know i, I made it pretty clear with my first wife like this is this is what we're doing and you got to be on board with this
0: okay so so let me ask you then are you are you fighting with her or are you just ignoring her like how how are you dealing with it day to day
1: yeah i mean it was um it wasn't i was ignoring mean, i'm i'm normally like i i don't back down on stuff i mean i was really probably in my 40s late 40s before i realized like I don't have to fight everything, <laughs> so you know. Well,
0: I think a lot of us realize it in the forties. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it was just a lot of fights, you know. That, it was, and that's, and again, like you know, knowing what I know now, like I there's, I could have handled it way better, right?
0: So, with this, you're you're doing it and you're you're kind of going through this selection um they're not really telling you when it ends or when it begins or anything like that after uh 40 plus days you you start running your mouth
1: yeah i, I didn't I, it was just one time I, I literally like i think i said it was like one sentence cuz yeah it was it was the same or maybe two sentences it was just to me it was just the same stuff like
0: there, i i think it was one sentence i think you said i get it yeah <laughs>
1: but it was it was just long ass movements man i mean you know like like what i know now which is most type of selections right a lot of weight a lot of long movements um you know and unknown times to like get there and challenges to like deal with and and to me like you know i had um we kind of glossed over like the orienteering stuff that i had done at west point but you know, I, like, land nav was never an issue for me. I mean, especially right. after doing that for four years. I mean, it was, I can I could literally, by the time I was a lieutenant in the Army, I could look at a map and, the, the you know, the terrain features would just pop out. Like, I could see things in 3D on a map that, and just that allowed me to, literally, I could pick a course out and I could maintain that picture in my mind and, and navigate, you know, I could do a 10-click movement and look at the map, like, twice type thing. And, um, and that, that's all I was doing for like 40 days. And, and so I remember, I don't even think it may not have been the end of, of one of these like multi-day movements, but I got to the end there, right? I hadn't slept in like, fuck, I don't know, three, several days, you know, definitely malnourished. And I just remember walking up to the guy, this dude that was standing in the road next to a truck and I just told him, I was like, look. If you need to know if I can land that? I got it. <laughs> so what's next?
0: <laughs> and they told you what was next, uh, yeah. 17 days.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, and I don't even know if that was like the, the deadline, honestly. That's how long it took me. Um, but they they gave me lat long, which was the first time they had given me lat long, right? And so because um, everything else was like grid cornets, right? And so. You know just being able to use a grid a grid map and a compass and and protractor and all that jazz um, but they gave me lat long and i instantly knew where it was because i i knew my geography of russia i knew my geography of europe really well um just from everything i'd studied and and so i looked at it and um i was like oh well and i remember i was i looked at this and i was like oh this will be a fun one <laughs> and and so i I, I still didn't know exactly where I was, but I remembered where some highways were and um hitched a ride to Richmond, uh Virginia. Um talked my way to literally ride on a DHL express plane uh to Europe because this was you know, late nineties and oh yeah. And, yeah, so you could you could get away with anything. You could back- pretty
0: much do anything at an airport. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I remember I, I walked up to the, the DHL counter there, and um, I asked the guy, I was like, hey, do you guys like need some help loading up a plane or anything like that? <clears throat> and he was like, yeah, we could sure use it. And I was like, well, you got any going to Europe? And he was like, yeah, we have three. And I was like, well, where are they going? And he had one going, I don't know, like one up north like to Stockholm or something, London, and then one way down south. I don't remember where the south one was going. And so... Um, I just picked the one going to Stockholm and I was like, Hey, I'll help load and stuff. And so I went out there and just, you know, back then that literally, man, they didn't have like those big containers that you see at the airports. Like you, I know you do airport stuff. Like you see them, like it was just like old luggage carts. Like you see loading luggage on an airplane full of boxes and you're just like throwing boxes on the plane. (laughs) type of thing and did that for a few hours, got a free ride to Europe. Um And uh then when I remember landing in Europe, I helped unload because that was like part of the deal. So I could get some cash and helped unload and walked in to collect my money. And the guy at the desk was, I said, are you Vance? I was like, yeah. And because, right? I'm not in a DHL uniform or anything like that. So he probably knew that. And he hands me an envelope and there's new uh, lat long on there because the the first ones they gave me were in deep within Russia, like just south of St. Petersburg. Um, And for whatever reason, like they pulled it uh, into Poland. So because Poland was, I guess, a little bit easier to get into. Um, But yeah, and so then I just... Hopped on some trains, got on some, hitched some rides and ended up, you know, found a map, uh, used the DHL map actually and, and talked them into let me take a map with me <laughs> so I could find this place. I knew where I was going and stuff and ended up, but yeah, it took me 17 days to get there. But yeah, no ID, no money type thing.
0: So let me ask you: When when you do all this, you still haven't asked any questions. You you make it through. You get selected into this. One, I want to know why you never ask questions. Like, did you just not care? Um, you know, I've never thought about that. No, it wasn't that that I didn't care. It was it was just what I wanted to do. Okay. So you do it, but it's an incredible level of stressors on you because Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a daily, you're proving yourself every day in what you're doing. And especially in the stuff that you're doing, I want to talk about kind of the paranoia because we're, we're, we're still spy versus spy kind of stuff, but there's paranoia involved, right?
1: Yeah. That didn't happen until the end though. I mean, okay. So, yeah, so let's
0: uh, talk about the beginning then, because I do want yeah. to get to the paranoia because I think it's yeah. an important part of your story. Let's talk about as you're doing the job in the beginning, we don't have to say who you were working for or anything yeah. like that, but are you still enjoying it? Like that's, oh, that's dude. what you wanted to do. Yeah. It was amazing.
1: Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it was, it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, but it was, it was, um, you know, fighting a bigger battle. I mean, it was early days on the war on terror, man. I mean, so we were all over Indonesia, you know, back in, when all those guys were like really kind of building everything around, um, you know, everything that really do was based on, you know? Um, and it's probably maybe, you know, what we were doing in Indonesia and Indochina, you know, all the South Pacific stuff that kind of pushed them into, you know, they started looking for a new home and, you know, found that in Saudi Arabia and Yemen. And so we, we chased some of them into that part of the world. Um, but it was, it was mostly like South Pacific stuff for us. Um, And it was, yeah, it was a blast, man. We had fun. Had a lot of fun.
0: Do you, and, and think about the question before you say anything, do you Mm. lose yourself?
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. That's a good question.
0: So let's talk about that losing yourself because you're, you're kind of losing everything. You're becoming a new person but I always like to ask people that are working undercover or people that are doing clandestine stuff. Are you becoming the person that you need to be for the job or are you becoming who you really are? And that person is just now coming out. The true person is coming out. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me it was, it was probably more just that's who I was. You know, I mean, I just, yeah, it was it was a happy place for me. Yeah, I mean, there, there were times, you know, main parachute malfunctions, you know, just dude, you name it, you know, high stress stuff that happened that, you know, and even at that age, you know, some late 20, probably really started happening around 30, you know, even at that age, it's just, you're super young and you don't realize like what all of that does to you, you know? and and so we're able to like just compartmentalize it and it's it's really cool for what it is and um yeah and so it was it was my happy place
0: yeah
1: okay. i mean i do i love it, love it. And, still until i realized i was like oh yeah yeah
0: okay so let's talk about that because uh, old Vance isn't home as often. He's kind of home as much as the guy next door that he did the runs with. So what's all going on there?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's really the, the, probably the biggest stressor, but I was like, I couldn't talk about it. Right. I couldn't say anything where it was. I, you know, I agreed to that. I mean, most, most of it, it was like cover jobs. Like I had, um, you know when, once once i gotten selected like i moved into uh our battalion s4 role and it was um you know primary staff job is a primary staff job but again it was credible s4 shop and they were kind of like aware of what was gonna at least aware of kind of what i was doing i don't know how much they knew and we never talked about it type of thing but you know i i wasn't there that much at all but There were always cover stories that we were all part of um, type of thing. And so, yeah, I mean, for me, the the biggest stress on my first marriage, man, was, I mean, honestly, so that was, um, you know, from doing the math in my head here. So, 93 to 90, I mean, so from 97 to... Yeah, I mean, six, seven years, really, of, you know, no truth around that.
0: <laughs> that's what I was just about to say. When everything yeah. in your life is a lie, how do yeah. you even come to the truth?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, and that's, and that's the, you know, the the lack of awareness that I had around it was, like, acknowledging it for what it is. You know i think i tried to like make the make the the cover the truth and you know force it rather than just allowing it to like sit i I don't fucking know but it was that was the bulk of it right you know and i i'm not a good liar so (laughs) it's (laughs) well i think you had to
0: be okay at it
1: yeah but you know most people that are intuitive you know they can sense the energy and know that it's not real and but yeah, that, that was the biggest challenge was just the years of, of no truth around everything. And that's, it adds
0: up. Okay. So let's talk as, as these years, cause I we said that we wouldn't go too deep into it. Let's yeah. talk about as, as it's gone on and, and you're, you're further in the career, this has been going on for quite a while. So what's it doing to you by, by the end, what's it doing to you?
1: Yeah. So I would really what, that the straw that Bertha camel's back for me was my, you know, my, uh, cover job with my last cover job really in the the army was working at the white house. And it was, I was in uh, presidential contingency programs office. Um, and it seems like I'd always ended up in these roles, like no real heavy lifting, but you know, so there was enough for me to like, um, be there to appear to be there type of thing. And as, you probably know from talking to people around the world, like it seems like we have these kind of people like everywhere (laughs) and a lot of universities and a lot of companies and they're just, you know, for whatever reasons they're everywhere it seems. Um, But anyway, like I had, we had been in DC for um, a few months and we were doing some training up in Northwest DC. We had a facility up there and Um, it was a week long training and intended to be, and like everything around the whole training session was, this was going to be a week and we knew this. Um, and so the iterations we were doing, we were in there super early, um, you know, around six in the morning and we were working till probably six, seven, eight o'clock that, you know, every night. And then something happened on Wednesday. And so we broke at lunch that day. And and so I would to get there, I would um, park my car at the Springfield Metro stop in Northern Virginia, take the Springfield train in on the Blue Line, all into town, and then take a couple a couple more stops up to where this was. And so I was doing the reverse. Um, but so I'd been you know I'd been on that schedule for two days, right? This is Wednesday, so I roll out of there middle of the day, and lean it up against the railing. We're sitting on a bench, um, waiting for my train to show up, and this woman comes and just gets, like, closer than a wife would sit close to you, like, right next to you, and super beautiful woman. She was, uh, I assume she was Indian at the time, because dark skin, a little bit of that type of accent and stuff starts asking me all these questions and within like two minutes you know, she's asking me about my marriage and asking like questions that at the time I just felt like were really inappropriate and and so I I'd, I'd um, you know just wasn't comfortable like even answering that type of stuff and so I train came up I got on the train and she said she was waiting on the same train too but I as the train pulls off she's still sitting there right so she didn't get on the same train. And so, um, you know, and now this is start running through my head and I'm like, you know, these questions are just too, like, she knows something somehow, some way, like she, she wouldn't be able to ask, like, how's my relationship with my wife and my fighting, and we fighting a lot. I mean, just stuff that she had to know something. And, and so by then, you know, I, we made a couple stops on the train, and then I was like, mm, "This is this isn't right." And so, um, we had a security guy at the White House that was responsible for our work, and so I I roll up to his office, and because it was a few stops down from where we were, uh, and I tell him what's going on. I'm like, "Hey, this you know that just happened," um, and he like didn't pause for a moment and he was like yeah we we knew we knew they were after you and i was like well, what do you mean um and he he said well there's a, a few countries that are have you targeted and i'm like Whoa. wait a minute <laughs> like when were you gonna let me in on this <laughs> now guy okay. you know type of thing and I was like, "Well, what other countries?" And he was like, "Russia, India, China," um, and there's there's like one more in there. And but I, I he kind of lost me at the, the Russia one too because when um, when I first gotten first moved to DC, um, you know my my wife and I had two kids by this time. Um, they were still at uh, Campbell and, at school and stuff. And and so, um, I moved up there, got a temporary apartment and stuff. I um, know I was, my mom was there. Yeah, so I was staying with my mom those first six months while uh, while I found a house that we ended up buying um, in her her apartment building. And so every morning I go down the gym because again this is like my first assignment that's like not on a military installation, right? And so go down to the gym every morning, I'm doing PT, working out, you know, all the normal stuff, stay fit type of thing. And um, probably a week after i got there, this this Russian woman started working out at the same time in the morning as I did. And she was beautiful too. Uh, and the fact that she was Russian and so we'd speak Russian and all this stuff. Um, and that went on for several months. And then all of a sudden one day she was gone. And so when, when security told me this, I was like, then I I would share this about the Russian woman. He was like, "Yeah, we we knew that was going on." And I'm like, <laughs> "Wait a minute, like, you know?" And one, I I guess maybe they assumed I should have asked that question that that I was aware, um, and I I was not aware, right? But that that was the moment. Like for me, man, it just started unraveling, um, you know. And there were just so many other things that had happened that it was just weird stuff. I mean, like we would, we would roll up, um, there'd be a lot of times through the years, like we'd roll up on objective and, um, you know, I'd be like, there'd be other people there I'd be like, huh, you're an American. I'm an American. Those other guys that are with you are American. I'm like, what are you guys doing here? And they'd be like, what are you doing here? You know? And, and I don't know if those two worlds like weren't ever supposed to meet type of thing um but anyway so that day though um, i get back on the train um and one of my neighbors just around the corner was uh one of our tech guys and um at the white house so he would he was actually the guy that i would i would send out to like do some of the, the counter communication stuff that we were doing at pcp um and so he he knew how to like look for bugs and those type of things i just had the like wild hair um to like have him come in and just see at a you know see if there was an, anything in this house that we had just bought, just renovated. So hardwood floors everywhere, ripping out walls, you know, all the mo- like not normal, but it was a lot of work, right? And I'm gone a lot. Um so there's really like very little oversight on who's coming in and out of the house and all that type stuff. And so it was a target rich environment. And and so he rolls in there and starts pulling out all this stuff from all these bugs that are from Russia, from India, from China and American, tons of American shit. And, um, I asked him like, dude, didn't, I'm like, is this normal? Like he goes, nah, like, especially to see our shit like mixed in with all of this. He was like, no, this, this isn't normal. Like there's, there's something going on here that like we're, we're not, none of us are aware of like, what any of this was. And, and so, um, and he had this one machine, this one little device that would like fry them. And so I don't, he couldn't like get to all of them. Cause there were some that were like under the hardwood floors that couldn't get through like hardwood stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, from that point on, you know, which, and that just, for me, just added a whole nother level of stress. Right. Because I, you know, there were a couple times, I mean, just because the, the cover gig I had was TSSCI Yankee white type stuff. Um, and so there were a couple of times I would, I would take my ex into the yard and we would talk about shit, but, um, you know, still like having to manage all of this craziness. Like it was, it was just too much for me. Um, and so that's when I was, I kind of let that roll for about a month. And then I was like, I, I just kind of. I gave him my notice and started figuring out like how I could get out of this. Cause it, was, it I just couldn't deal with it.
0: So you, you move on. And is this when you go to the continuity of operations programs that when you start working that
1: yeah, at the Pentagon? Okay. Yeah. So was, let,
0: you leave that, um, you also get a divorce before you take that job, right?
1: Yeah, it was, um, Yeah, it was still a few years. I mean, I I still had a few more years of that. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Just whenever we talk about it, it's so funny to me because you look so far back and go, yeah, I was just trying to get out. And then you look eight years down the road. Nope, they're still there. And and then, you know, so you start using this, uh, you start doing this continuity um, of operations program. You said that you wanted to talk about 9-11 a little bit, and I want to talk to you about it because there was some stuff that you did on 9-11. And then I want to talk to you about kind of some of the the faults and stuff that you said, and then we're going to get into, you know, wrapping it up about what you've done after that and and what you're doing now. So so talking about, let's first talk about the Army continuity of operations, what you're doing there, what that all has to deal with, and then let's get into 9-11.
1: Yeah, it was... um you know, and so the, the Army, uh, and they still, they still run it for DOD or um, for non-military folks. So the Department of Defense or DOD World and COOP or of Operations, like this is all the continuity of government stuff that most people think is like conspiracy theory type of, of jazz and stuff. Um, and so the, the gig I had at the White House was really kind of the, the pinnacle of that program. Um, and so all of the other ancillary programs within, within DOD, within the Congress, um, kind of supported what we did at the white house. And so I, I knew that whole system. Um, and so that one of the, the contractors that worked for me at the white house, they had an opening for the DOD program that was, uh, run by the army. The army runs the whole, whole department of defense program. And so they own all the facilities. Um, they own all the aircraft of like real key leaders and Department of Defense um, and that type of stuff. And it sounded fun, right? I mean, it was a good sound like a good gig. And, and as an Army guy, right? I think I went from making forty seven thousand dollars a year with two kids living in you know Northern Virginia slash DC to doubling that in in a day, you know, type of thing. I mean, it was it was um, a good amount of money. And, and then the other, the other driver that I think that, that started kind of piquing my interest was some of the people that I was working with at the White House. Um, you know, I mean, these were like Harvard, Columbia, you know, insert your Ivy League school of choice. Brilliant people. I mean, it was Clinton's administration the uh, first few years I was there, first two years. And um, so regardless of the party, I mean, these were still smart people like really smart. And, you know, I mean, you probably remember when you're, how old are your daughters,
0: Ken? Uh, so my oldest is almost 17. Yeah.
1: So, you know, when they're like five and three, like you think they have the cure for cancer locked up inside their head. Right. And it's right. your responsibility as a parent to get it out. <laughs> so, you know, and as, as a captain, um, even, you know, I was making some hazardous duty pay and some jump pay and that type of stuff, you know, it was still chump change. Um, and to be able to like provide that kind of education for my kids wasn't an option. And so this all kind of, I mean, seriously, man, within a year, it like, just all flipped for me. And um, I remember walking into the GS-15's office uh, at the Pentagon on my first day, <clears throat> and he was like, yeah you know, happy to have you on board. And the um, first thing that, that you guys need to do is is rewrite the uh, DOD uh, COOP plan, of Operations Plan. Um, and and so I by then I had already like read through it uh, and it's, you know, a few hundred pages of an op order style kind of thing that just deals with relocation of the key leaders, right? Where everybody's going, how they're doing it, the timing of it all and all that normal op order type stuff. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know, I've, I've written a few op orders in my life, um, and he says your deadline is August thirty first, two thousand one. And I was like, "Got it, right?" Because you know, I had no idea what was going to happen. Like, <laughs> you think? <laughs> Twelve <quote>, days later, <laughs> right? And so, what was even, and you know, looking back on it, it's it's even funnier because um, you know, the the current plan wasn't like that out of date it was like most things at that level um updating the intel estimate um you know some aircraft change and some other things but it was it wasn't it was i felt like it was more busy work than actual like material work than anything but part of the intel estimate that we had to include that i sat down with agency guys on and they laid out for me was some somebody flying airplanes into buildings in the u.s right like it was, it was there. And, and so we finished, you know, finished rewriting it. I mean, I had 120 people on my team at the time um, with all these different facilities and everything we had going on at the Pentagon. And so work through all of that. I, you know, we literally had to train all the key leaders, all their aides, put this program in place because back then, like, dude, you, you didn't have secure cell phones, you know? I, I mean, it was, key card type stuff like you would get a call in the clear over your like your brick of a cell phone right it's about this as big as my yeti cup here (laughs) and it's all in the clear you'd be given a code word you know challenge you'd have to come back with the proper counter sign that's in the aids book right so you had to pull out the book tell you the proper word we would tell him what card to pull out what card to crack open that then you know told him where he had to be and he had like depending upon where they were in town, they had like 10 minutes to get there. And if they weren't gonna be there to get picked up, next one in line gets it, you know, type of thing. So we'd finished all this. And the last piece that we that I couldn't get to work um, was the HF radio network that connects the, the DOD's facilities for continuity. Um, and there's about 10 different organizations that are on this HF radio network. And so for you, non comms guys out there. Um, HF radio is this old token ring technology that in order for everybody to talk, everybody's radio has to be on. And it has to work. Uh, because the way it works is it's not like broad, it's broadcast, but it, that each subsequent radio passes on the message type of thing.
0: It's and almost like a telephone game,
1: almost like a telephone yeah. game, right? The, the value of HF radio is it it works under nuclear fallout, right? So in a a nuclear emergency, right, fallout stays about 2000 feet above the ground. And so HF radio will just sit there and bounce underneath that. And so you can still communicate and it's really the only means of communication that you have in that scenario. So it was kind of important. Um, And so uh, we couldn't get this to work remotely. And and so I had the bright idea um, to have a meeting at R, which most people know, you know, they has R has its own Wikipedia page and has for many years, um, which is the, the DOD's primary facility. But um, I decided to have a meeting on September 11th, 2001 at 0900 at R, with all the tents of all these different facilities and Harris Telecommunications that made these radios. Um, and we were going to fix it on that day because these, these radios weren't that big. I mean, they're like, a little bit bigger than a shoebox type of thing. Um, you know, and there so sort of weren't a ton of parts in there. And so we could swap parts off. I had twelve brand new radios if I needed to like replace everybody's, but we were gonna fix it. That was gonna be the day. Done. September eleventh, two thousand one. Um, and so I mean there's a lot of other things that happened, but I remember we were we had just finished renovating the chief of staff of the army's conference room in this in this hole in the ground, right? Seven hundred feet underground. So this is 2001 you know mahogany rear screen projection it was high speed you know and (laughs) back then (laughs) and uh and so i'm standing at the podium in this like big conference room there's a door right here to my right a few of my guys are out in front of me sitting in chairs you know and when uh we had cnn going on behind me and one of my guys just got this like quizzical look on his face and I turned around and it was trade center, you know, CNN, trade center, one smoking. And right about that time, um, the army 06 that runs side R, uh, comes around the corner and he's standing in the doorway right here next to me. And, um, the alternate, uh, national military command center NMCC was two doors down from where we were. And so I, I'd, I'd ask, uh, this army six, I was like, Hey, just go down and see what they know. And he came back like two minutes later and he was like, it's dude, it's like fucking craziness. They have no idea what's going on. And, and so, um, and right about that time, you know, it was the time that the second plane hit trade center two. Uh, and, you know, and so up until then we had kind of, and the chatter on most of the command networks was, Oh, it was, you know, some little plane, cause the, nobody had any video yet of like the first plane really like slamming into Trade Center one. Um, but when we saw, you know, the second plane on live TV hit Trade Center two, um, you know, Army 06 looks at me. And um, so normally my, my boss, this GS-15 that, that ran this office, he was the guy that made the call to start relocation for everybody we had already tried to call him couldn't reach him and he's like well vance you're the only one that knows this shit. so what do you want to do and and so i i was the guy that initiated relocation of, of dod leadership on september 11th 2001. um and then right after that like right after uh we had gotten rumsfeld uh who was obviously sec def uh wolfowitz who was dep sec def uh general shelton was chairman of the joint chiefs at the time general Shinseki was uh secretary of the army at the time or uh chief staff of the army and then the command of the marine corps and i can't remember chief staff of the navy was awol i can't remember what happened to him but once I would gotten all three of these guys uh, up in the air, we failed over um, control from the, the primary uh, National Military Command Center at the Pentagon. Because by then, um, Sector E had been hit at the Pentagon. Um, and so, NMCC was a long way from that. But yeah, you know, I mean, dude, after that second plane hit, like the, the chatter on all the networks, on fucking everything was just like, nobody knew anything, what was going on. and we, I mean, the stuff we heard coming across every means of communication was just craziness. And and so nobody knew anything. And so we went ahead and failed over uh, control of the military to the alternate there at Site R. Uh, and then, I mean, the big thing that was running around then was... Um, You know, people that were honestly like out all over around D.C. with anti-missile aircraft trying to shoot down airplanes. It was just nuts. And so I I jumped in a van, drove out of Site R up to the the landing pad because I knew everybody was was coming in. And um, this little E-5 was standing there trying to land like a a single Huey or a Blackhawk at a time on this LZ. And I'm looking at this and I was like, man, you can fit four fucking helicopters on this thing like right now. And and so I rolled up there, landed because you know I'm I'm looking up and and I can see all these helicopters just lined up, you know, waiting to come in. And so I I land all these dudes. You know, I'm riding in the van underground, you know, 700 feet underground with all of them. I look Rumsville in the face, and I I was the guy that looked him in the face and said, to, "Sir, we think 50,000 people could have died when the trade centers fell because they they fell when when all of them were in flight, and they don't." They have some comms in the aircraft, but they didn't know what had happened, like, in the 22 minutes it took them to get up there.
0: So what do you think the failure was that day? Because um, yours is an interesting idea to me. I've never really heard anyone say this idea.
1: Dude, there's – I mean, I don't – I mean – the what do you mean by failure i guess
0: <laughs> well so when we, when when you talked about it you said sure. that there was a lot of i t failure that day um, um,
1: yeah. yeah but but,
0: I- but I've also heard intelligence sharing um you know all that kind of stuff, but I'd never heard someone say i t failures that day
1: for i mean it was within doD at the time like that that was a big problem like i I mean the um, for the conspiracy theory guys that are out there, like, man, I, the, the stuff I heard happening on, um, you know, for the week subsequent to everything, cause you know, I'm sitting in the back of the national electric command center and, and a lot of these briefs and hearing what's going on and what we're seeing around the world and stuff. Um, and I heard a lot of things that we can talk about if you want to, that make me question like the the reality of what happened on september 11th you know um but with within dod yeah i mean it failover was a huge problem like it it was a huge huge problem like the i mean if if the e-wing e-sector hadn't been hit at the pentagon it probably wouldn't have been such an issue but um know i mean it was that was where the navy command center was and so the data center for them was right next to that and that that was about to be burned to the ground and the navy the navy leadership wouldn't have had email like because there was there was no failover for them you know and so when when we uh my you know, kind of chief of staff for everything we had at the Pentagon was this uh, retired Marine Corps Sergeant major or whatever they are, you know, an E-9 in the Marine Corps is, um, I can't remember, Bruce was his name. Um, and the, the other funny story about September 11th, like we couldn't call anybody. Like the only way we had to communicate was BlackBerry Messenger. Like BlackBerry Messenger, BBM, save the day, like save the country. I mean, honestly what was going on. And so we were messaging back and forth. Um, and he, he told me like where the fire was and um, we all knew what was there. And so I had two guys that knew where those Navy email servers were. And so I had, we had a Blackhawk sitting there at Site R. I put him on a Blackhawk, sent him back to the Pentagon to like rip those servers out of the rack before they burned. I mean, that's, that's how we failed over Navy email on September 11th.
0: So with everything that you did military-wise, uh, civilian-wise, doing that job, and you look back on it, is there anything that you would have liked to change or anything that, I don't want to say a failure, but anything that you maybe could have done better?
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, if if I could, my last probably, when, when I knew that I was able to, like, leave all my super classified stuff. Um, and I, I knew that was going to happen. Um, I, I'd spent probably the last few months trying to convert my job at the White House to a civilian job. And I, I wasn't able to like pull that off. If, if I could have pulled that off, man, that would have been, been cool. Because that was a cool gig.
0: <laughs> okay. You know? well, fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Let's talk about what you did after the military. Um, I want to talk about your racing a little bit, and then I want to talk about what you're doing right now. Uh, The racing is interesting to me because you you say at one point you went from like 185 doing the job to like 255. You had given up running, given up kind of PT and stuff, and you got back into it. And the way you got back into it was to run 100-mile ultra marathons. Yeah. I don't think that's how most people get back into the game.
1: <laughs> it start 50, I started with 50s. Um but yeah, my it was my wife's fault really, my current wife. Um
0: Okay. Yeah. Was, okay. So let's make I want to set this up. The first <laughs> wife is now officially gone, correct? Yeah, she's, okay.
1: Yeah, 03 was when that started, 04 when it was final. Um But yeah, and so um we had uh, so I had my first two kids for visitation um, down here in Austin, and you know if you're from Texas, most people know we have Lake Travis here and a couple a couple other lakes and stuff. And so we had had the kids at this one weekend, and so we ran out and uh, rented a boat out of Lake Travis, right? And so my son, I think, was probably 11 or so at the time, um, and he, so he's you know, you imagine driving a you know a powerboat, ski boat, or something like that. He's sitting in the the driver's seat, the captain's seat, and I'm sitting on the seat right behind him and he's kind of like in between my legs and I'm helping him like steer the boat and stuff. And my wife takes this like profile shot thinking it was a really good father-son like picture, right, from the side. And it's it's an amazing picture except for like this, my massive belly that you could see <laughs> in the picture. <laughs> and and so you know i just didn't realize like how big i had gotten um at the time because i didn't like weigh myself and yeah i was like through myself kind of i feel like probably like i've done most of my life you know threw myself into my job at the time and um yeah i didn't need to be like fit like i needed to be before and so yeah i just just let it go um and you know started running and you know, ran a couple marathons and didn't feel like that was enough. And so I, that was when I was like, Oh, I wonder what it'd be. Actually, I actually had the cookie idea of like, I wonder if I could do like two marathon, like a marathon, one, like two marathons in a weekend. And that was kind of what got me started on ultra marathon stuff. Um, and so yeah, I started running fifties and hundreds and, you know, played around with that. Um, and you know, really, when you when you try to uh, push your body like that, <clears throat> you you have to learn a lot about the body, and that's those really those years, man, were, have given me the foundation of everything that I'm doing now. You know, because you know, I remember <clears throat> getting to the point, like one of the first like twenty mile runs I had done for training. And we live, where we live in Austin, we're right on Barton Creek Greenbelt. And If you're, if for those of you not familiar with Barton Creek Greenbelt, it's like, it's one of the gems that Austin has. It's literally probably um, hundreds of miles of trails right in the middle of town. Um, like I can run out my door, literally jump the curb right across here, get on some dirt and I can be on dirt trails all the way to within about. A mile of the capital of, of Texas, and it, it'll take me like probably forty minutes to get there on a mountain um, I mean, it really—it's Barton Creek grandma. It's an amazing place, and so um, I—by I, the bats, yeah, yeah, you go right you, by the bats,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I just had to ask.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'd hooked up with one of these ultra running groups and, um, you know, I remember the first 20 mile runs I'd done and I'm like racking my brain like, why does my body hurt so bad to like just run 20 miles? You know, I need to be able to run 50 miles. And so you start learning biomechanics, you start learning, understanding nutrition, you start learning just how the body works um, and you kind of get to the point to where you can do more and more and more and you just keep pushing. You know, that's kind of how it it all
0: went, and so what I want to talk about though, what was interesting to me was when you get that third meniscus tear and you start using um the the nX pro and you're doing the rehab and stuff, and I think <laughs> uh new tech was part of it, and then the yeah. nX pro and you start using it it's it's I'm guessing from everything that I read on it and stuff it's like a tens machine or it's it's like a shock machine to kind of yeah um. Uh, to, to heal the body. But I'm wondering where you got the idea that, Hey, this is healing me. Uh, but I could use this to do something else, which you would never think the two go together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the difference or what's unique to the NX pro is right, right. A 10 unit is just alternating current. So it's just the kind of electricity that comes out of a plug on the wall. Right. And so that's what makes muscles seize with a TENS unit. And so the the kind of like the physiological effect that you get from that, right, is you're making muscles involuntary contract, which draws blood flow to the muscles. And so for like lactate and recovery and that type of stuff, it's it's super good for that. And so what NUX um, has figured out a way to do is create a blended waveform of AC current and DC current. And so like if you're you're running the nx pro is say 250 hertz um which is a lengthening frequency for muscles um you know that that waveform is switching from alternating current to direct current 250 times a second right and so your your body is absolutely unaware of that, um and so you can increase the intensity level to where you get some muscle compensation or muscle movement um but for and depending upon what your, you know, the desired outcome is, you, you may want that, you may not want that depending upon what the activity is. <clears throat> but the, the benefit of it is you have the AC part of the waveform, which talks to motor neurons. And so it recruits more motor units in a muscle. The DC current, is um, and I at the time like I didn't understand what I do now about it after doing this for two years. The, the DC current waveform is nearly physiologically similar to the the waveforms and wave frequencies that the parasympathetic nervous system uses to communicate with the body. All right, so you know the autonomic nervous system has two sides, right? Um, sympathetic, which is stress. Right, which is when we're going into a gunfight or going into a high stress situation, that's what gets triggered. Makes the pupils dilate, makes your breathing rate increase, makes your heart rate increase, blood pressure increase, narrows the vision. Um, all that that's sympathetic nervous system. And so, parasympathetic is what's called feed and breathe. And so, it's just the inverse of all that, right? Expands the vision, slows the breathing, decreases blood pressure, all that type stuff. And, and so, um, you know, at the time, like I didn't understand that type of thing, but the, the benefit of it from a training perspective is when you apply this waveform to a muscle, you're recruiting 2000 times the motor units that you normally would. And so a motor unit is the individual muscle cell that the, the brain calls on to do a task, you know, shoot a gun, lift a piece of paper, lift this up, like that's just the brain doesn't like think through of like, Oh, what do I need to do to lift this? It's like, Oh, I've lifted this a million times. I'm going to do the same. You know, it's kind of like a computer program. I've done it a million times. This, I'm going to call on the same motor units, same movement to do this. And so what, what the NX Pro was able to do is say, well, hold on a second. There's 2000 times more motor units down here for you to take a look at Mr. Brain. And, and so what does it do? The brain's like, Oh, I forgot about those guys. And and so it starts to relearn whatever that skill is of choice that you're doing with this thing attached to you. And so for me, um, you know, I, in the midst of COVID, you know, change the workouts that I was doing. So I was running down the street out here with a hundred pound sandbag on my back and tore that third meniscus. Um, and so found a doctor to do some regenerative stuff on me because I had a couple that said, well, the options are taking meniscus out and then in about two, three, four years, you're going to have to have both your knees replaced. Um, well, or you can take your meniscus out. You know, it's like that's all they were saying. And it wasn't – I didn't feel like it was so bad that that was my only option. Um, and so found a regenerative doctor that uh, – Really amazing skills, and and was able to, at what feels like, and after a subsequent MRI, heal a lot of the cartilage dam, cartilage damage that I had, heals all three of my meniscus, um, and and so part of my recovery from that was working with a, a PT here in town um, with the NX Pro, and and so. Five weeks after I had 52 injections into my knees, um, you know, I was squatting 375 again. Seven weeks, I was back up to 405. Like, I, I mean, <clears throat> this is not normal, you know, to be able to come out of something like this. So that, cause some, some of these injections, man, like it's literally a hollow nail that he is shoving into my femur and my tib-fib to like put these all this healthy stuff in there because healthy brown bone grows healthy cartilage right and so uh it was about that time you know just things started clicking i was like you know i wonder if this could help you shoot better um because I, I had had was this one dude on my team man that was he was i mean it was like out of a movie he was so good so fast and um You know, we, one of my early missions, like he was, he drew the card to be breacher that day. And, uh, I mean, he was so much faster than all of us. Like we, we literally were probably 50% faster than we normally would be. Um, just because his, his vision was so much more broad and he was able to engage targets so much faster than we could. Um, and I've always been enamored by him uh because of it. And that's really kind of what got me thinking about the shooting piece of it. Uh and so got some guys together, a couple of them I knew, a bunch of them I didn't, and we went to the range and tried this out. And sure enough, man, I mean his first group was like I think 23, 26% faster, and then uh expanded that doubled that. I think we had 12 the second time we went to the range and started wondering if accuracy would be a piece of it. And really all the guys that we had I'd hit the first time, they were all, I think 20, you know, 25, 30% more accurate and, and still getting faster. I mean, it was, and, and the other weird thing that, I mean, like I remember the first guy I'd put on the firing line connected with the NX Pro and he was an older guy at the time. He's probably like mm, 60 at the time. And uh, he wore glasses, and he was like, "Man, the the lines on the targets are super clear. Like, I don't normally see this good." <laughs> and, and other dudes were like, "Man, I don't I don't have tunnel vision. Like, I can see everything in front of me." And um, after a couple reps, you know, guys are like, "You know, I'm looking at the fifth target, and I'm, as I'm pulling the trigger on the first, and I, the body is just like." following suit. Like, I don't even have to think about this anymore. And, um, and so yeah, that's when, uh, you know, I took this back to X and X was really interested in that. Um, and so worked for them for about a year. And, um, you know, this, this play just takes a long time. Uh, and newex wants to sell machines and what I, I soon found out from working with departments and um, you know other soft units and, and stuff is uh, like that especially in in the big government world or big military world like to buy a capital expenditure you know is is a process but to buy training is is not a process like there's a credit card, here and they can buy it and so that's that's the world that we started playing in and that wasn't the world new x wanted to play in and so we um harold and i bounced and started AutoTelic uh in january um and, and have been doing that since because well what, what we found is um you know it's more than anything like what, what i've learned over the last couple of years is a skill like i can you know the old school mentality of firearms training of, of like taking guys to like just burning them into the ground, right? And shooting eight hours a day, like you probably a lot of guys did going through the police academy. <clears throat> it works, right? You learn how to shoot, but does it does it need to be that way? And and so we've we've proven with a couple departments now that we can take officers with like, you know, fresh out of the academy, say under two years of experience and, and in about forty five minutes, they're as fast and accurate as an officer with 10 years. Like, it's other world, right? Because the concept, what happens is, you know, when you're putting this much energy into the nervous system, the the brain thinks that it's getting 250 repetitions a second. That's a lot. Right. You know, so you can do the math, right? Even, you know, 250 reps a second, you know. um, So... Let's just say, you know, we're doing that fifteen thousand times a minute, right? And if you do fifteen thousand times let's say twenty minutes, you know, twenty minutes your your brain and nervous system feel like it's gotten thirty thousand three hundred thousand reps. Sorry.
0: So let's let's talk about that then since you brought that up. I mm-hmm. want to go over some numbers. Forty five minutes of training, hundred and fifty rounds of ammunition. You have a 50% stress reduction, 30% focus increase, and it can allow 80 officers to be trained in 120 minutes.
1: Um, 80, 80 officers would be like the reboot time. I mean, we okay. can do, yeah, so <clears throat> reboot, I mean, like firearms training, we can do um, probably 10 at a time. Okay. You know, but, um, but you're
0: talking now, is that the 45 minutes of training or is that the reboot yeah. too?
1: Yeah, no, Reboot's
0: just 10 minutes. Okay. Yeah. So you do 10 at a time, 45 minutes of training. Mm -hmm. How many can you, when you're selling this to an organization that has to get a lot of people through, because I've heard you talk about uh, remedial shooters and stuff like that, that have to get an um, extraordinary amount of officers through. How much can you get through in a week's time? And what are we looking at on results of that?
1: Yeah. A week. Um, you could probably, I mean, realistically do some quick math, you know, you could probably do, I mean, depending upon how many hours a day, right. You know, 50, 60 a day. So, you know, probably 300 in a week, somewhere in there.
0: And you're looking at that 50% stress reduction, 30% focus increase. Now, what does that mean for the normal person looking in from the outside for a law enforcement point of view when you have, and I know it sounds like a very basic question, but I think it's an important one to ask looking in from the outside and you have shooters that are more capable, faster on target accuracy. What does that mean for a police department?
1: Um, I think it's, it's a precision thing, right? For you guys. And so at the end of the day, one of the like, especially when I started pushing into the law enforcement world, I mean, of of the couple hundred folks that, that I've worked with, uh, it is really like law enforcement, You, I mean, 80% of your first round is going to hit. That's just the way you guys are trained, right? You know, now the second round, there's a big question there, but um you know, you, you do that, right? Because at least 80% of your first rounds need to hit, right? Because you're most likely in a, in a crowded situation. Um, and so there are people that aren't probably a target that are around the target. And so you've got to be precise. And so, you know, the, the difference is, I feel like it's a survivability thing also, because like we we normally we can cut draw times in half, especially on the law enforcement side, you know, so if you're you're able to get on target half second faster, second faster, you know, that type of stuff. I mean, there's there's a massive survivability aspect on the for the officer itself. um, A huge precision increase that that comes with this because, you know, the, the concept of let's say you can get 300,000 reps in 20 minutes. You know, you you can't get there any other way. Like back when, you know, ammo was outrageously expensive, you know, about a year and a half ago, like I'd work through
0: or um, last week.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um I'd work through a couple models, right? Like for some departments, I, I mean, it was like a couple hundred thousand dollars a year just in ammo savings. You know, if you could cut just training academies, the firearms part of training academies in half. you know, because and and the way the way we had kind of I'd figure this out is, you know, like I, I, I don't want to be a firearms trainer. Like I don't want range master's gig, um, you know, and so what what we've done with a couple of departments is we just overlay, right? So I manage the machines, pad guys up, you run your normal training, do your thing and you just the results happen in half the time. I mean that's that's the crazy stuff.
0: Yeah, you know, because well, it, it it's super interesting that because it's so counter I guess counterintuitive that that it would be less time for more training. Yeah. It, that's it, what's it, so it, crazy. It, and I think I think that's where people on the outside look at it and go, it's not possible. You right. you can't train half the time and get better results.
1: Yeah, it, you're exactly right, and so that's where, like for us, the the firearms piece is is struggling to to get in departments, um, probably for that exact well that reason, and um, you know the cost of inflation nowadays, right? And so the gas that you guys are paying for in departments, everything has gotten more expensive, right? And you can't budget for a double increase in gas and and all those type of things, you know, that are going on, um, and so money's just not there. And so we're doing some stuff with the the Texas state government to like create some grant programs for departments to have available to be able to like take advantage of this. But you know, that the money side is always an issue. Um, And, and so the, but the, this like foreign concept of, you know, one, putting electricity into the body, you know, type of thing is, is something that is very unique. Uh, And so the other, really the, the bigger thing that has taken hold probably in the last six months is just first responder wellness you know i mean i know i've seen some some announcements in the paper for the dallas police department right there's some big moves that you guys have been making around around that but um taking care of first responders and so we've been doing and i've done probably in the last week 50, little close to fifty reboots here in town. Um, for first responders, done a lot of EMS work, a lot more police too. Um, just because it, it's a need. Like I got dudes that, that text me in the middle of the night, man. Hey, can you meet me for meet me for coffee tomorrow? <laughs> type of thing.
0: Well, yeah. You know? Well, so let's wrap this up with that. Yeah. So, how can people or departments get a hold of you if they want to do the reboot program? Because from what you're saying just now, can it be individuals that get a hold of you for a reboot? Oh yeah, totally. Okay, so let's talk about how people can get a hold of you.
1: Yeah, I mean the best way, right, is um you can just hit us on our website, right, which is which is um at-ps.com. And so there's a little page on there that you can like drop your info into. Uh, my email is vance.mcmurray at at pscom Uh or my mobile is 512-517-8946. Uh and so You know because the 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 biggest thing man is it it makes a difference um and it makes a difference in like 20 minutes and it lasts for anywhere from depending upon the kind of role that you're in uh anywhere from 10 days to a month one reboot does uh and then the second reboot that that passive time doubles in length and that doubling continues to occur so let's say if you get two weeks of, you know, relaxed state out of the first one. Uh, the second one, you're going to get a month. Third one, you're going to get uh, two months, you know. And so after about six, you have about six, eight months a year of, of this kind of heightened state of relaxedness, um, that type of thing happening.
0: Okay. So with everyone being able to get a hold of you, they can find prices, all that kind of stuff, once they go to the website. And if you'll give that one more time,
1: yeah, it's AT-PS.com.
0: Well, you've got an amazing story. You and I have talked for a while on the phone and stuff trying to get this set okay. up. Yeah. And um, I, I I, think it's amazing from what you did in the military to what you're doing now. I think that it's going to make a big impact later on. I think once all of the scientific research is completed, and this has been going for a while, so you have that that backup data to yeah. show all this, I, I think that... It'll be all over the United States. It's a very cool idea. So, guys, I think that's going to be it for the show. Uh, I'll have on the website everywhere that you can find Vance um, and get a hold of him. You know, if you want more of me, you can find me at the DTD underscore podcast at Instagram. You can find me on YouTube at the DTD podcast. And you can also find me on... Facebook at the DTD podcast. Now don't forget dtdpodcast.net is kind of the one-stop shop. You got the audio version, the video version. You'll get to see pictures of Vance. You'll get to take a look at the machine that he's talking about and you'll get to look at a lot of different things and get a really closer look at Vance and everything that he's talked about on this show. Also, don't forget, go to our sponsor, Police Coffee at PoliceCoffee.com. It's an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee is some of the best you'll find out there, but it also serves an important cause. It gives back to our community. 50% of the profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. Do not forget to go to them, policecoffee.com. And when you do and you put your order in, if you put DJK10, you get 10% off your order. Well, Vance, thank you for stopping by so much. Your story is an amazing one. I hope that a lot of people come and check this out. And uh, as for police departments and first responders all over the United States, that's going to be it, guys. That's Vance. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.